A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, I'm on the podcast this week. Mary Wakefield tells us about her frustrating experience trying to give blood. James Ball on whether this is the beginning of the end for Mark Zuckerberg. And Christopher Howes reads his notes on signatures. Up first, Mary Wakefield. I read about the national shortage of blood last week with a feeling of gloomy inevitability. The brains of the nation are scrambled. Westminster's is insane, so of course the country's bleeding out. But at least I thought, I can help a bit. I've given blood in the past, and I kind of enjoy it. There's the feeling of warmth and purpose, and biscuits. I'd never actually pay for a packet of custard creams, but like most English women and men, I'm a sucker for one or two free on a saucer in a medical setting. Our blood donor scheme is actually all-round cheery. Each country has its own circulatory system, a flow out from the veins of donors, off to hospitals and into patients. Some countries have to resort to paying donors for blood, and the inevitable result is a contaminated supply. Addicts, desperate for cash, lie about their blood-borne diseases. There's almost no way to screen them out. So the best systems in the world rely on unpaid donors, willing to give without knowing where their blood will go. There's no call here, yet, for a scheme that allows you to ensure your blood isn't used to revive a Tory. So that's heartening too. So I went to the NHS website, feeling upbeat. I found the link marked Give Blood and clicked. Oops, something's gone wrong, said the screen. I should have sensed what would come next. I know that, oops. It's a regular and loathsome feature of all government sites. It implies just a cheeky little anomaly nothing to fret about, but a broken link when you're trying to pay a bill or sort out your housing or help alleviate a national blood shortage isn't lovable or roguish. Try again later, said the site. So I did, repeatedly and dementedly, until, on the 27th attempt, I got through to a list of possible donation sites. London EC2. That's not too far. Ah, but the next available donation slot was the 13th of February 2023. Next, Merchant Street, E3. But the first slot was the 9th of February, 23. And that was it for my part of London. How and why, in the middle of a blood shortage, is it impossible to donate blood? I find it hard to understand. And why is there so little explanation for all the prospective donors out there? The blood shortage was reported everywhere, with terrible accompanying warnings about operations that would have to be delayed again, and transplant patients dying for want of blood. NHS Blood and Transplant must have known the horror stories would bring a surge of visitors to their site. You'd have to have very little faith in humans to think it wouldn't. So why the lack of attention to them? Why the lack of explanation? This isn't just a minor oversight. The NHS BT depend on attracting committed blood donors, especially young ones. Now they've galvanised the next generation, told them there's a crisis, then slapped them down. Maybe some of those who tried for the first time to give blood last week and failed won't try again. Oops. What the NHSBT would say, I expect, 
is that the blood shortage story was misreported and the problems are more complex than a simple lack of blood. They'd have a point. After failing to donate, I returned to the original story and found it's not blood donors in short supply so much as donor carers, the staff who meet and greet, insert the needles and hand out the custard creams. If there's a lack of blood donor slots available, it's perhaps because there's no one to run the clinics. It's another facet of the great mystifying staff shortage, which is a global problem for all that remain types blame Brexit. But that doesn't really solve the mystery and it doesn't exonerate the NHSBT. If it's donor carers we need, why not start recruiting them? And why not start recruiting direct from the ranks of wannabe donors trying pitifully to sign up? Why not teach us to tap a vein? A crisis in donor care isn't like the staffing crisis in nursing or aviation. It doesn't take a decade to train or seem to require any previous experience. This is from the website. There are no set entry requirements or formal qualifications to becoming a donor carer, says the NHS itself. You don't need a healthcare background or any qualifications. We've seen in the past few years that volunteers can be successfully trained and marshaled in a crisis. Millions signed up to deliver the COVID vaccine. I'd leap at the chance to be a donor carer if there were any chance to leap at. The NHS is at least clear there is no chance. After my demoralising failure to give my lifeblood to my country, I tried to find a way of signing up to be a donor carer. Page after page on the NHS's values and mission statements, a lot on their diversity and inclusion strategy. We're working hard to ensure we better reflect the communities we serve, they say. When in the end I found a place to apply, it was the same story. There are no vacancies in your area at the moment. Perhaps try expanding your search area. Well, my search area was London. It might seem like a cheap shot to go on about diversity policy. Everyone's just trying to get by. But phrases like more work to be done are a reliable indication of an aversion to risk. Institutionalised cowardice, we could call it. It means we can predict with some confidence it was decided in some meeting that volunteer carers were too troublesome a prospect. What if there was an accident or bad press? The NHSBT is a vast organisation full of well-beating scientists, facilities and chocker with volunteers. Filton, near Bristol, is the biggest and best blood processing centre in the world. If you're looking to offset despair, just read about the Blood Bikes, a volunteer group of mostly middle-aged men in leathers who choose to spend their spare time driving blood from donor centres to hospitals. Their motto is, the ride of your life. So all these are good things, but something's askew with the management of the NHS when they fail to prioritise supplying blood, which everyone, however diverse, needs to survive. That was Mary Wakefield. Next, James Ball. Mark Zuckerberg is in a lot of trouble. He's turned away from the slog of running Facebook to focus almost entirely on his metaverse, a vision of the internet where people enter interactive virtual spaces using virtual reality, VR, headsets. He has pledged investment of at least $10 billion a year for a decade, and investors have been told that profits will be lower for the next decade as a result. He saw the digital future once. Could he repeat the trick? Right now, it seems not. His company's stock price has more than halved, wiping $600 billion off its market value. Shareholders are worried. Meta is to cut expenses by at least 10% in the coming months, in part through redundancies. More cuts are expected. Last week's Meta conference, 
held in the metaverse aptly enough, failed to change the mood. The announcements of a $1,499 VR headset and the dramatic introduction of legs for metaverse avatars did little to convince the markets this really is the future. Meta's share price is down almost 25% just in the past months. Zuckerberg's personal wealth has shrunk by more than $76 billion this year so far. There's an obvious problem with Zuckerberg's vision. Who wants to wear a clunky virtual reality headset, watching outdated graphics that induce nausea? In the world where most of us use the internet via our mobile phones, can this really be the future? The figures suggest not. Meta expected 500,000 active monthly users on its VR platform, Horizon Worlds, which is accessed by VR headsets, by the end of this year. The current figure is fewer than 200,000. Leaked internal documents show that most of those who visit Horizon tend not to return after the first month. Meta staff themselves are reportedly unsure of the product. The simple truth is, if we don't love it, how can we expect our users to love it? wrote Meta's Metaverse Vice President Vishal Shah in a memo last month. Even the small slice of people who think the Metaverse is the future don't want Zuckerberg in their club. The Metaverse isn't meant to be dominated by a handful of tech giants in the way that's happened to social media. The utopian idea, known in Silicon Valley as Web 3.0, is decentralisation, helped along by technologies such as cryptocurrencies and blockchain. The man who came up with the term metaverse, the sci-fi author Neil Stevenson, is in fact part of a rival virtual reality team, producing the metaverse to be powered by blockchain. There are many others. Despite this, Zuckerberg is betting his house on the metaverse. Meta employees tell me he's all but clocked out of running the embattled Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. Why worry about fixing their issues? if the end goal is to make them obsolete. Facebook may have been passé for a decade or more now, but until recently it maintained an impressive revenue stream thanks to a somewhat dubious bit of activity tracking across mobile phones. If you had the Facebook app, it could see elements of what you did outside that app. This provided useful information for advert targeting on Facebook and elsewhere, keeping profits high for years. Then Apple introduced the option to ask app not to track. More than 97% of users opted out of ad tracking, and Facebook's revenue took a huge hit. Sometimes such companies appear too big to fail, but in the tech world, empires can crumble as quickly as they are built. Ask Rupert Murdoch. In 2005, he forked out $580 million for MySpace when it looked like the world's hottest internet firm. Two years later, it had 300 million registered users and was valued at $12 billion. Yet it was overtaken by Facebook, launched a year after MySpace, and later offloaded to an online ad company for around $35 million. When users decide to ditch one platform in favour of another, change can be brutal. Instagram is also tanking because of TikTok. Zuckerberg's site recently tried to offer a TikTok-like feature of short video reels. This type of copycat tactic worked well for the company when Snapchat was the new rival. This time, though, such imitation didn't go down well. Users, including the Kardashians, 
so hated the new TikTok-style feed that Instagram was forced to reverse the change. Meanwhile, the latest social media app to make waves, Be Real, has billed itself explicitly as the anti-Instagram option. It sent a notification at a random point in a day demanding you post a picture of whatever you're doing. The spontaneity is a reaction to the excessive editing of Instagram posts. Despite his unpopularity among tech figures, Zuckerberg looks set to leave all of this behind in his move to the metaverse. The big question is whether he can build something responsibly. What's to say that the metaverse doesn't become a way to be abused and sexually harassed in virtual reality? The Wall Street Journal recently reported that when one of their female reporters visited one of Horizon's most popular virtual worlds, the Soapstone Comedy Club, she was asked by a user in the virtual room to expose herself. With a user ratio currently of one woman to every two men on Horizon Worlds, this sort of behaviour is likely to be quite prevalent. Facebook's problems are widely known. From child pornography to jihadi material to election interference and everything in between. Last month, Amnesty International called on the company to pay more than £150 billion in compensation to Rohingya Muslims for propagating hate speech in Myanmar. That wasn't the only headache for Zuckerberg either. In the same week, Instagram came under the spotlight during the inquest into the death of the British teenager Molly Russell. The 14-year-old left an Instagram post that said, I'm just not good enough before taking her own life in 2017. Her family argued that the content she saw on Instagram depicting self-harm and suicide influenced her actions. The coroner recorded it as an act of self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. Instagram's head of well-being, however, rather boldly claimed that the content Molly viewed was safe for children. On the surface, WhatsApp might look like a simpler proposition. But the app, which Zuckerberg bought for just under $20 billion eight years ago, is also causing problems, both financially, he hasn't found a way to monetize it, and politically, end-to-end encryption has led to friction with governments worldwide. Meta employees I've spoken to say they despair that their boss has checked out from his three apps and isn't interested in suggestions on how to improve them. It could be quite frustrating. We would be trying to point out what I think were quite reasonable and universal technological or logistical realities, but they would be almost ignored, said one Meta staffer who's worked in Europe. Zuckerberg appears to be trying to do enough to look like he's fixing problems, while really just shunting them away from himself. Nick Clegg's role involves handling the politics for Facebook, now the number one source of written news stories in the UK, while the company has set up an expensive independent oversight board to adjudicate its thorny and moderation decisions. Another issue Zuckerberg faces is that while he was once able to buy his dominance in the market, Today, he is stifled by competition authorities with a much better grip on just how big Meta is now. Such authorities are warier of Meta buying up potential rivals, as it did with Instagram and WhatsApp. UK authorities this month successfully challenged its purchase of the GIF company Giphy, which is hardly a multi-billion dollar powerhouse. Zuckerberg is not yet 40 years old. So it's no surprise that even with his $50 billion net worth, he doesn't feel ready to retire just yet.
there's no one within Meta who could oust him by force, as his shareholding is too large. But while he still seems to need Meta, and still wants to have one more signature achievement of his career, it is increasingly clear that Meta doesn't need him. Four years ago, the Facebook founder revealed his admiration for Augustus Caesar. Zuckerberg honeymooned in Rome. His wife jokes that Augustus was the third party on their trip. One of his daughters is called August, and his strange haircut is reportedly inspired by Augustus's style. But as he fiddles in the metaverse, ignoring the fact that the rest of his empire is crumbling, he is beginning to more closely resemble Nero. That was James Ball. And finally, Christopher Howes. I have a photograph of Queen Elizabeth II and her parents on the wall of my bathroom, not out of any lack of respect, but because the gloom there prevents it from fading. It's signed Albert with an odd droop ford of the bar of the tea to join a single flourish beneath, and Elizabeth in a familiar hand. This is not the late Queen's signature, though, for it was made in 1927, when Princess Elizabeth was hardly into talking, let alone signing. Queen Elizabeth, whom we still think of as the Queen Mother, was a simple royal duchess then. Yet one can't help thinking that in choosing her style of italic signature, she'd taken note of that of her namesake, the first Queen Elizabeth. Another Elizabeth, Liz Truss, got some stick for the signature on the letter to Quasi Quarteng about his sacking. Actually, sticks have been uh, thrashing wildly, even when she did nothing wrong, as with the inclusion of his name at the bottom left. That was pounced upon by Knowles on Twitter, as if she thought it was her own name, though it's perfectly correct to put the addressee's name there. Anyway, it was the knotted wool form of the signature that provoked gasps. Her Christian name seemed to begin with an R, Robot, or D, Dumbo. Tells you all you need to know, tweeted someone or other. Another commented, Graphologist's Field Day. Hey presto, up popped a graphologist in Metro. Truss, she wrote, can be captivating, tenacious, imaginative, and eternally optimistic. But there's vanity and fear that she will elicit criticism. That sounds more like astrology than graphology to me, although now I come to think of it, the latter has just as few claims to scientific method. That first Queen Elizabeth betrayed few symptoms of wobble in her sign manual. Hurry, perhaps, would account for her sometimes omitting a crisscross flourish to the B, in addition to the one descending from her long Z, which underpinned her name with four overlooped bows. Even in the 1530s, when she had no lively prospect of becoming Queen, she put a mousetrap-shaped flourish after her name. This was happily replaced with a curlicued R for Regina on her accession. 
But in a chillingly familial variant for letters to her cousin and prisoner, Mary Queen of Scots, Elizabeth signed herself L for Elizabeth, R for Regina. But it would take an imaginative graphologist to detect any tremble in Mary Stuart's signature the night before her death. No tangled wool for her. A letter to the King of France wound up in clearly formed Italic script, Vostre très affectionné et bien bon sœur Marie R. Legibility has not always been counted a virtue among the mighty. Charles Kingsley once received a letter of condolence from the Bishop of Durham. In its 14 pages, he could make out any one phrase, ungrateful devil. Past prime ministers have made their signatures with practiced dullness. H. H. Asquith's was like cranes on a building site. Lloyd George's like a roped party climbing an alpine glacier. Churchill signed himself Winston S. Churchill to avoid confusion with Winston Churchill, the once famous American novelist. If there is now a need felt for legibility, I suggest our leaders go the way of the Spanish monarchy in the Golden Age. Philip II did not sign letters with his name, but appended the words, Yo el rey, I the king. With a rapid turnover, there's simplicity in the sign-off, I, Prime Minister. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join us again next week. <laughs>